0: Open a book, and it invites you to fall in. I was not an overnight success. I scratched and clawed my way up.
1: I literally asked them, I want to be a war reporter. Do you need any help in Bosnia?
2: (laughs) So much of actually writing is putting aside my inhibitions and thinking, this is too melodramatic. Are you really going to kill this character like that? And then by 10 PM, you're like, I totally am.
1: Welcome to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Today, novelist Maggie Stiefvater talks about the adventure of writing in the voice of dead Welsh kings, murderous horses, and even young men.
2: I get asked Ah. this question a lot about what it's like to write from the opposite gender Mm -hmm. and as I was telling them, no one ever asked me what it's like to write from the point of view of a serial killer.
0: That's true.
1: (laughs) Stiefvater is best known for her New York Times bestsellers The Shiver Trilogy. Coming up next, we'll hear about Steve Fodder's life as a writer, a new proud owner of a race car, and a sharpie guitar artist by night. Her newest novel is The Raven Boys. At the National Writer Series, she spoke with Bookend's blogger and young adult book reviewer, Lynn Rattan.
0: It's so exciting to be here and to be with the very first YA author in this great series. Um, Your blog, of course, I know most of the, a lot of the audience have probably been out there reading every word, so I'll try not to summarize all of that, but it says you've been a a calligraphy instructor, a technical editor, a wedding musician, um, and of course an artist, So and now this best-selling author. So give us a quick tour of just how this fascinating life of yours all came together.
2: I was a small and resentful child. (laughs) Mostly I dressed in black all the time. Now this was before goth and emo, so I wore black turtlenecks all the time, and when people asked me why I wore black all the time, I said things like, I'm mourning the death of modern society. (laughs) (laughs) Also back then, my name was not Maggie Stiefvater. Back then I was born Heidi Hummel, You understand now why I was resentful. (laughs) I never really identified with the name Heidi Hummel, and um, this hatred grew and grew until I reached the age of 16, and I went into an eye doctor's appointment, and the receptionist said, Heidi Hummel, what a cute name. It sounds like a figure skater. (laughs) I got right up, and I went out to the car, and I said to my mom, Mom, I'm changing my name. And because I was named after one of my dad's ex-girlfriends, she said yes. (laughs) Anyway, so then I continued on through my troubled teen years when I wrote lots and lots of terrible IRA thrillers with kissing scenes before I'd been kissed. Um, my husband is a, an ex-cop now, but when he was a cop, he used to have this uh, weapons manual on his bedstand, and it showed how he was supposed to take the weapon apart and clean it and then put it back together. My kissing scenes were a lot like that, but with fewer <laughs> diagrams. Anyway, so I was homeschooled from sixth grade on, um, learn to play the Highland bagpipes because why not? And I don't know, I've always been writing and everything else, and Sharpie,
0: the end. (laughs) So, you're just launching your seventh book, Raven Boys has a first uh, publishing run of 150,000 copies, which is a lot, people, that's a lot of books. Uh, and it's already been awarded four stars by the review journals, and uh, the buzz in the ether is practically deafening. So for those who haven't been lucky enough to read it yet, can you give us a quick synopsis of this great book? No. No?
2: No. uh, Just that every single book I write gets harder and harder to summarize. Yes. I mean, I felt like it was bad enough with Scorpio races. I mean, those of you who have ever read the Scorpio races, and someone asks you what you were reading, you'll know exactly what this is, right? We're killer horses on an (laughs) island, and so I feel like this one's even worse. It's sort of um, rich boys, fast cars, psychics, daughters, dead Welsh kings, and helicopters.
0: Yeah, there is a helicopter. That's right, and ley lines and. Fabulous, too. So, yeah, really exciting. I know a lot of you have gotten your hands on it, so we can, we can just trust uh, the rest of you to rush out the minute this is over and, and get it to read. Um, I'm fascinated by your creative double life, or triple life, I guess. You're a writer, a visual artist, um, and a musician. So, can we talk about the writing and the drawing part of it? Um, how have those two gifts um, shaped you as an artist? Um, how have they shaped your view of the world? And, and how do you go back and forth between them, um, those two really interesting art forms?
2: I really think of them as the same thing. That I always say there's this poem, the blind, Man, the blind Man and the Elephant. Have you heard of it? Oh, yes. <laughs> of it? So it's these blind men who are all standing around an elephant and they're all touching a different part of it. I know it sounds gross, but bear with me. So like one's got a leg and one's got the trunk and one unlucky one's got the tail and someone asks them what they're touching and the one with the trunk says it's a rope I think and the one with the tail, no, he's got the rope and then the leg's got a tree trunk but they're all describing the same animal and I feel like the art and the music and the writing are all describing the same animal and I guess the visual always wins out. When I'm writing a novel, I always picture it as a movie playing in my head Mm -hmm. first, and then I try and translate it. And especially with the Scorpio races and some of the very magical sequences in The Raven Boys, I just remember sending emails to my critique partners and saying, I can't translate this. I can't find the words to make the image in my head appear on paper the right way. So that's constantly a struggle.
0: Talk about the music too. I mean, that's such a huge part of your books. Um, we saw. I know that um, Sam writes lyrics um, in Shiver, and um, of course, uh, Lament and Ballad are such musical books. And I think so often your writing has that sense that of lyricism. It really flows beautifully, like music. So, so talk about the music in, in your writing.
2: But I have four siblings and my entire family is very musical. My mom played the piano very well and that, well she still does, and set us at the piano the first moment that we could stand and I still don't play it very well, but <laughs> I was there. I came. So, um, we all were kind of like a uh, musical Celtic von Trapp family. <laughs> uh,
0: and no wonder your name is Heidi Hummel. <laughs> yes,
1: indeed.
2: Yes, indeed. And uh, we could be trotted out for all kinds of engagements. and all kinds of parties to play. We were instant band in a box, and I don't know, so that was always just part of the lexicon was Mm -hmm. music was always there. And I don't know, I've always been fascinated by the way that lyrics and prose poetry are kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. All that's missing is the music playing in your head. And also I studied medieval history in college, and so much of that stuff is meant to be put to music.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a great segue um, to the mythology and folklore that's also a huge part of your books. Um, You know, I'm a librarian, so I love this idea of the research that you had to do for all of these books. Um, You know, you've got Welsh legends and Celtic folklore and Manx mythologies, I mean, you've got a lot going here. Talk about your research process. Oh, my
2: goodness. Okay, so with the Scorpio races, of course, it takes, it's a horse race that takes place at the base of cliffs. And I always had this image of a red horse at the base of white cliffs, and I became obsessed with trying to find these cliffs. So every time I traveled someplace on tour, I would try and arrange a side trip. So in California, I looked at those cliffs. In Yorkshire, I looked at those cliffs. In Devon, I looked at those cliffs. And uh, my husband came with me on a tour to Paris and it was December. It was four days from our wedding anniversary. I never have my husband with me when I tour, so this is quite unusual. And my French editor said, you know what, Maggie, you know, it's Sunday. You're in the city of love. It's snowing for the first time in Paris for 18 years, and your husband is here for your wedding anniversary. Take the day off. Just go, go enjoy the city of love. And I turned to my husband and said, lover, (laughs) rent a car, we're driving to Normandy so we went to the cliffs of Normandy I still don't know what Paris looks like in the snow because we headed right out of there so I don't know, the thing is with books I always want to put my hands on everything and with this book, one of the big mythologies that I was unfamiliar with was Ley Lines, which mm-hmm. are supposed to be perfectly straight supernatural energy lines that connect spiritual places. And so, again, I was visiting them everywhere that I possibly could. And I went to this one in the UK, Dartmoor, which is known for its moors, which mm-hmm. are in turn known for swallowing people whole and occasionally coughing up supernatural hellhounds. <laughs> and uh, it's the kind of place you take your mom. LAUGHTER So I did. I went there with my mom and my sister and my extremely pregnant friend, Aaron, and we went to a hotel in the middle of the moor, and our ultimate destination was Whistman's Wood, which was a creepy, bent-over, moss-covered wood that was supposed to be right on a ley line. And it's supposed to be the creepiest place in the UK and also where the devil keeps his dogs. You didn't think the devil was the dog-keeping <laughs> <laughs> He totally is, and they're there. Again, the kind of place you take your mom. So <laughs> it was supposed to be a five-minute walk across the moors to these woods, and so we started out one foggy morning. You couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. And uh, one of the principles of the ley line, the legends around it, is that they mess with space and time, and I'm not saying that was a factor, but our five-minute walk turned into a 10-minute, 30-minute, 40-minute it been an hour. There's nothing. There's just more and fog and sheep, malevolent sheep. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, we're never gonna get out of here. My sister's never gonna go to college. <laughs> I'm never gonna finish
0: my book by my deadline.
2: Erin's gonna have her baby right here
0: <laughs> and the sheep are gonna eat it. <laughs> now there's a new book. <laughs> <laughs> That didn't happen, by the way. So, um,
2: Because the woods were actually five yards to our left the entire time. So, <laughs> so we went in there and it was indeed very creepy. There were no devil dogs there. We took pictures. It was, it was amazing. It looks like a Hollywood set piece. And then when we stepped out of the woods, we hear this snort, it's like a very real snort of an animal, very real size. Wow. And we all look at each other and you can tell that we're all thinking the same thing, devil dogs. <laughs> And then the missed parts and, ah, it's a herd of wild ponies. (laughs) I I realize that's very anticlimactic. They didn't eat us. Erin didn't have her baby in the woods or it was fine. (laughs) But yes, I like to put my hands on everything when I'm researching. And I'm constantly reading for research. You never know when something will spark
0: it. You were a history major, so is that the origins of some of this interest in the mythologies of, of the, that appear in your books?
2: I would normally say yes, yes, but I can remember very clearly when I was that small black clad child like Wednesday Adams that one of my favorite books that I checked out from the library was Catherine Briggs' Encyclopedia of Fairies, oh. a big fat moldy tome of all of the evil beasties that could kill you in Supernatural Britain. (laughs) And I read that over and over and over again. And that that was where I first read the entry, the iakushka, the Scottish water horses that would jump out of the ocean and gallop up and down the beaches and if you caught them, they would make these fast, beautiful horses and if they caught you, they'd pull you into the ocean and your lungs and your liver would wash up. It was one of my favorite stories back then.
0: Oh, absolutely. The gorier, the better, right? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> um, another piece of your blog that I wanted to pull back to is um, you have such wonderful, thoughtful reflections on, on writing there, which are wonderful for, for all of us that like to read about the process who can't do it. Um, and you've said there that writers know what they want, but not what they need. That's a fascinating notion. Can you talk about that?
2: I think writers and readers are the same that way. Uh, I get a lot of emails asking for more sequels to books or asking for sequels to the Raven Boys, which they're in luck because that's the first book in a four-book series. And they'll tell you what it is they want exactly. And it's very intriguing, and it looks... It looks fun for the characters, but it would make a terrible and boring story. Because what we want is for us to be happy. We want everyone else to be happy, but the basis of fiction is conflict. Mm -hmm. So if you just go and marry them off and they have kids, I mean, off they go. People often want me to write another book in the Shiver series. I don't know why. They love Sam and Grace, don't they want them to live happily ever after? They must know that if I write another book, terrible things will happen.
1: (laughs)
0: What are they thinking?
2: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it's possible that one of those two is not going to walk out alive, I'm just saying.
0: (laughs) We'll talk more about sequels because um, Scorpio Races, of course, stands on its own, whereas your other books, many of them have, well, they all have sequels if you count Lament and and Ballad together as companion books. Personally, I think that was a brave and wonderful decision to leave it right where it ends. But, but talk about that. Weren't you tempted to just sort of go on with Puck?
2: No, I love that world. I really do. And when I got to the end of it, I, I mean, I knew from the very beginning it was a standalone. I could see the whole arc of it. It's one of those novels. I don't think I can write another novel like that for 10 years. It, <laughs> well, it draws on everything that makes me who I am. And it pushes all of my reader buttons at the same time and um homicidal horses come on <laughs> and uh yeah so that's one of those books that just came out of the faucet it appeared like it was supposed to be and when i got to the end i was like surely there must be another book in here please be another book because i feel like i could still turn the corner and see more pieces of that world but the character arcs are done and mm-hmm. the metaphor that the horses stand for is done it's done. okay
0: yeah <laughs> sometimes i think it's better not to know as you say what- it's Leave true. it to the imagination of the, uh, the reader to carry on. But, That's true. And there's yeah. actually a
2: line in there where George Hawley, one of the American characters, says what he thinks happens in their future, yeah. and I totally believe him.
0: <laughs> um, you talked about your, the arc, your, um, your character arcs here. So let's talk about the writing process since all of these people are interested in that or they wouldn't be here tonight. Um, do you have a writing routine uh, schedule? Do you need quiet conditions to write or can you write with the kids roaring through the house? Um, Are you a yellow pad writer or a computer writer? Talk about what you do.
2: I feel a little bad because most of my writing process looks like this. (laughs) 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 Which doesn't make for very, interesting watching or storytelling, I'm afraid, when (laughs) describing my process, but half of my time at least is spent brainstorming. Usually I have to listen to music while I'm writing. Anywhere I go, I have to have music on and uh, to keep me in the mood of the book. And I spend just as much time thinking about the book and brainstorming and planning what I want to do with it as i actually sitting in front of it. So my routine often involves me getting out in my car. All of my good ideas happen over 65 miles an hour. (laughs) Speed limit around my house is 45.
0: (laughs) And you're married to a (laughs) policeman. You understand the conflict inherent in this story already.
2: And um, so, yeah, a lot of my process is thinking and listening to music and thinking some more. But then I can write anywhere. I can write on planes and buses. This is like a Dr. Seuss story, actually, all of the places (laughs) that I can write. And when you're on tour so often, you have to learn to write. I will say, I used to not be able to write on planes because I had this idea that people would be looking over my shoulder while I was writing, and I talked myself down. I'm like, Maggie, you're being so egotistical. No one is reading over your shoulder <laughs> while you're writing. And then I was writing The Raven Boys on the flight back from Frankfurt, and I wrote a joke into it, and the guy next to me laughed. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> you're breaking down the fourth wall. <laughs> It was a sad moment. Now I always get a window seat and I'm one of these people. <laughs>
0: and you, the blanket tents up around you, right? Yes, yeah, so I have a
2: very nice set of headphones so I can write anywhere.
0: Do you write at night? Do you write during the day? On your, if you could choose when you wanted to do this, if the ideal world where you could write wherever you wanted to write, what would you do? Well, <laughs> as
2: topless attendants, bring me cookie dough. <laughs> Tony's gallop past my window, followed by muscle cars. Um, (laughs) I think probably from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. That's my sweet spot for actual writing. I love to think during the day and then really get down to work then because so much of actually writing is putting aside my inhibitions and thinking, this is too melodramatic. Are you really gonna kill this character like that? And then by 10 p.m., you're
1: like, I totally am.
0: And then he's dead, right? <laughs> he's dead. No one ever comes back. <laughs> I'm going to remember that. <laughs> um, the characters really shine in your book, and several of them feature first person alternating narratives, um, both male and female, which is really interesting. Um, talk about writing from the two points of view, and what's it like to write from a male point of view? How do you do that so authentically? Well, Two of you are from my
2: yeah. creative writing group that I talked to <laughs> earlier. Yeah, because you guys already asked me this question. I get ah. asked this question a lot about what it's like to write from the opposite gender, mm-hmm. and as I was telling them, no one ever asks me what it's like to write from the point of view of a serial killer. That's <laughs> true. I mean, they just assume that I, that I have experience right. there, I guess. Or a homicidal fairy, <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't think of it from the point of view of an opposite gender. They're just another character. Every character has to be specific and not just generic dude, it has to be a very specific dude. And so therefore, I, just, I also steal. I should just confess that right now. I, uh, I steal people all the time. I took my two brothers for the Scorpio races, I'm not sorry, I'd do it again. I steal people from school visits, I steal people on planes. Um, There was one guy who's now Adam in The Raven Boys. He had such an entertaining story on the airplane. I was like, I'm gonna use you in a book later. And he was like, sure you are. (laughs) Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Although I'm probably not gonna include that bar fight you just told me about. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, I definitely steal and then I feel like I'm painting a portrait of them. And so that's what I do with them. And I love the alternating points of view because I feel like we're all heroes in our own story. We always think we're doing the right thing. I mean, sometimes we know we're doing Thing. But usually we think we're totally justified, and then when you step outside the situation, you're like, oh, you're totally not doing the right thing. <laughs> and when you have multiple points of view, mm-hmm. you as the reader get the privilege of seeing that from all sides.
0: I love that, too. I, I think a lot of readers like that shifting back and forth. It, it, it gives you that momentum, too, in the book sometimes, which I think same. is really exciting.
2: I still remember the first time that I realized it could be done, and it wasn't in the same book. It was the Wrinkle and Time books because I remember, how many of you guys have read them? Oh, <laughs> thank you. And so um, I remember then in the books where it switches from being Meg and then suddenly in the next book, she's older and married and Calvin, and you're like, oh, that can happen? <laughs> and so that was the first moment I remember.
0: One of the other strengths, we're talking about strengths of your writing. Um, you talked about it a little bit, but that's the, the almost cinematic settings that you have. Woods of Minnesota, um, that small town of Henrietta, Virginia, the island of Thisby, which truly, I I felt like I had to go find it on a map. It felt so real to me. Um, Talk about setting and how, you've talked about wanting to see those places, but how do you translate that into into words?
2: Mm. Uh, Research really helps. The thing with the Scorpio races in particular is that it was so alien to any place that I'd ever actually lived, I was certain I was going to get something wrong unless I actually went there. And so I read so many memoirs of island life and visited as many places as I could that would give me that sensation. And there's nothing that can quite take the place of actually being in a setting. Mm-hmm because you're always going to miss something. You might be able to create something without actually being there. I could have created a Thisbe without ever visiting, for instance, the Yorkshire coast, which is where I shamelessly ripped off those cliffs. (laughs) But going there and smelling it, Mm. I would always be missing the smell. And so it's that kind of thing, something that you wouldn't anticipate, and I will always be missing. So you you can do it without, but you can do it better by actually visiting. So, and I do steal all the time. So even though Henrietta is a fictional town, it's stolen from all of the small towns that I live around in Virginia.
0: Well, and besides, then you get a trip to Yorkshire, right? So. <laughs> I like to make all of my
2: vacations tax-deductible. <laughs> yeah. My husband's like, and your next book's about the Caribbean, right? <laughs> <laughs> <It's>
0: right. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Um, you often advise young readers to write the sort of book that they would like to read. Um, talk to us about that, and, and also, what kinds of books did you read as a teen? And and also, maybe, you know, what kind of books do you read now? Oh, this is
2: a terrible question to <laughs> ask. Okay, so I used to read everything, and the books that I would read on my own were always fantasy set in the real world. I especially loved the works of Susan Cooper, yes. The Darkest Rising series, those of you who haven't read her. Aren't you in for a lucky treat, because you're going to go buy it right now?" Um, <laughs> she took Welsh mythology and set it in the real world, of course, mm-hmm. and Diana Wynne-Jones, who was so funny and fantastic, and so these were actually the essence of Maggie, but as I was developing as a writer, I was also trying to catch the attention of my dad, who was a flight surgeon with the Navy, and he was gone for six months out of the year, and I totally idolized him. He was the kind of guy that could chainsaw his own leg and then stitch it back on. <laughs> that really happened. <laughs> And so I was like, you're a wizard. And uh, (laughs) he read all kinds of thrillers that were called things like Point Blank and Running Fast. And they usually featured guys in leather jackets on the back or guys with leather jackets and their dogs or guys in leather jackets and their dogs and a gun. (laughs) And uh, he would hand them down to me all the time. So I grew up reading these books for me that librarians kept putting in my hand saying, if you like Susan Cooper, how about Lloyd Alexander? And then I was reading these books with my dad and I loved the fact that when I sat down at the breakfast table when he was there, he could say, well, what'd you think of that book? And I could go, well, and we could talk about it. And so I was very excited about this. And he idolized these authors. He really thought this was the best job ever. He imagined them off, you know, jet setting with their dogs and leather jackets or whatever. (laughs) And uh, maybe that's true, I don't know. If anyone should know, it should be you guys. You probably saw them. And... uh, They were (laughs) here last week. Yeah. To that whole (laughs) idea. And so, uh, I started writing thrillers as a 15-year-old, IRA thrillers. (laughs) Yeah. um, They were bad. They were extremely bad. But they were the kind of books that I thought my dad would be really impressed with. And I actually found one of the chapters that I wrote as a 16-year-old. It was one of the introductions. It was this kerfuffle. There were a bunch of Irish terrorists. Some. Police guys. There were some bystanders, a dog, a flag flying overhead. Who do you think I chose to narrate that scene? Who says the dog? But that would be illogical. What <laughs> could the dog possibly bring to the table? No, it was a flag. <laughs> <laughs> and the last line I still remember it was, and above all, the flag flew on, uncaring because it was, after all. Only a flag. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But see, I was writing for my dad and this imaginary Mm -hmm. audience and I kept on, I mean, they weren't very Maggie novels. And you know, if I kept on, I'm sure I could have learned to write a thrilling IRA thriller. But somewhere along the way, I was reading Catherine Briggs' Encyclopedia Mm of Fairies and I realized that was the story that I wanted to tell mythological stories, mm-hmm. and so that was when I first started writing the fairy stories. And I mean, instantly it clicked. I knew the moment I wrote Lament, the rough draft, that this was the one that was going to get published. Mm-hmm. So I always say, write the book that you wish you could find on the shelf,
0: and the one you want to read. Yeah, right. Talk about the publishing process. Uh, you know, so often we talk about you bursting on the scene in 2008, but writers, you know, have. That bursting process always takes years and years and years. Um, How did you burst into a published book?
2: Well, I burst into a published book with a small publisher first, so it was a very small burst. Uh, (laughs) It was this small. We were extremely poor because my husband was a cop and I was a portrait artist. Happy but poor, an idyllic life. And so uh, I got a call from the editor, We're taking your book, and I ran out to the driveway and I shouted... (laughs) They're buying my book. And my husband went, we're buying a mattress. <laughs> <laughs> the neighbors didn't bring us casseroles after that. Actually, they didn't anyway, because until the house before last, my husband had this really bad habit of arresting all of our next door neighbors.
0: <laughs> That's socially inhibiting. So you know, it really is. Yeah. It's
2: like once you've seen them thrown over the hood <laughs> of your husband's squad car, it's like, do you want me to babysit your kids? <laughs> also I'll check your furniture for crack. Um, So, yeah, it started out very, very small, but the thing about the publishing business is I actually love the publishing business. It's this big, unwieldy, clumsy thing, but it's also very fair. There's this kind of urban legend that you'll write the great American novel and you'll send it to publishers and no one will recognize your greatness and you will die in obscurity with vodka. You might still die in obscurity with vodka, but not if you've written the great American novel. It's not gonna happen. It's a very fair business in that if you've written a book of quality, you might get a couple of no's, but you'll get enough feedback that you'll know that you're getting close. And I, as someone who hates arbitrary rules and likes fairness, I find that very comforting because even though I have enough rejection letters to paper all of this, Mm -hmm. as soon as I stopped writing crap, I started getting published.
0: (laughs) And that's the secret,
2: right? Well, I think it's very useful, too, to understand as a young writer, or as any aspiring writer, whatever age you're starting at, that you will suck. I mean, we all suck to start out with, and then it's just a question of practicing like a musical instrument.
0: <laughs> okay. I will keep that in mind, because um, I'm still sucking, I'm afraid. <laughs> More vodka. I, that's what I need. Or I need to marry a, a policeman. I'm not sure yes. which. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Your books have um, been published as young adult. Um, I think those of us that read and have been in the business know that that's a tremendous field with some of the best writing that's going on. Um, But I know for a lot of adults uh, that that is a a totally different world. Um, Did you always intend to write for teens or was the publishing process pushing you in that direction?
2: Well, obviously the IRA thrillers were meant for adults, <laughs> <laughs> clearly, with all of their extreme instructional manual kissing scenes. Uh, no, I actually always thought I would write for middle grade, mm-hmm. to tell you the truth, because my heroes were Diana Wynne-Jones and Susan Cooper and Lloyd Alexander, and when I was a teen, <laughs> way back in the 1800s, there was no real YA section, there was a lot of mm-hmm. contemporary sort of issue YA, but mm-hmm. not so much this YA fantasy that you see. And so. I really thought that I would end up on there, and so I started writing these books, and then they started swearing, having sex, and killing each other. And well, luckily, there's a new <laughs> genre for that. And that's where I landed. I mean, it's very convenient because the <laughs> works that I loved of Diana Wynne Jones were the ones that were always kind of ill fit for mm-hmm. middle grade. I loved her Fire and Hemlock, which is a much older teen. She's
0: at the end of her high
2: school years going into college. And I mean, it was YA before there was YA.
0: Right, and I think we are seeing that bumping up to, I think we're seeing the YA definition, which, which traditionally has been 18, and I think we're seeing that push um, older true. and older, I think. Um, well, it's very strange, yeah. too, because
2: the Shiver trilogy has been published in 38 different mm-hmm. territories, mm-hmm. and when I tour overseas, in a lot of countries, they don't have a YA section, right. and so they stick it in adult. And so here, I'll often have apologetic adults saying, I'm reading it even though it's YA. And over there, like in Germany, I'll have apologetic teens going, I'm reading it even though it's, it's adult. adult.
0: <laughs> well, that Well, you bring up an interesting phenomenon because the big buzz right now in publishing world is what they're calling this crossover reading, which is adults reading books, um, young adult books. And, um, in fact, there was an article, I think, last, last week maybe in Publishers Weekly talking about the adults were purchasing most of the teen books and they weren't... 55%. Yeah, yeah. And they weren't purchasing them for teens, they were purchasing them for themselves. So as someone who writes for a YA audience, um, does that change how you think about uh, your audience or who you write for?
2: I'm a very selfish writer. Um... All of my writing friends that I have write for themselves, and I think that's pretty true. When I'm writing, I'm not thinking of my audience in the moment of rough drafting. I think when you do, it becomes this intrusive third party looming over your shoulder. I wrote the first draft of forever imagining my audience and resulted in disaster. I ended up having to throw the entire thing out on my deadline, which made my editor so happy. (laughs) Uh, I think you have to write for yourself, and so for me, I often, mm-hmm. I write for myself, and then when I'm editing, sometimes I'll mm-hmm. think about my audience, I think, do I really need all of this swearing,
1: <laughs> and
2: also, it's like when I wrote Shiver, I was 28, my, no, 26, my sister was 10 years younger, so she was 16, and my mom was 25 years older, and so I just imagine if I hit all of them, being happy readers, I'm good. <laughs>
1: And finally win. Hey hey hey. Took everything I own. You're listening to the National Writers' Series on Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton, founder of the year-long book festival held at the City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan. Maggie Stiefvater is the author of the young adult book series, The Shiver Trilogy. Her newest book, The Raven Boys, is part of a planned four-book series. Maggie spoke with librarian and blogger Lynn Rutan.
0: I have to ask you a totally geeky fangirl kind of question here before the kids get to it because they'll probably ask the same question. Um, Do you have a favorite character from your books?
2: (laughs) How many of you have read the Shiver Trilogy? (laughs) Well, in this case, listen closely to what I have to tell you. I'm going to tell you who my favorite character was to write. But before I do, I would tell every teen in the audience you may not date him. <laughs> <laughs> he is undateable, unfixable. So I enjoyed writing Cole St. Clair. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> find a teen. Because he started out as a terrible person and then he became unterrible. It's very satisfying as a writer to write someone with such a extremely large character arc. And there's another character like that in the Raven Boys who I think will have definitely stolen the crown, hands down, from Cole by the end of the series. But right now, Cole takes the cake because he started out with one of my critique partners saying, he is terrible. Write him out right now. He is awful. I want him dead in a ditch. <laughs> Unfixable. And I was like, oh, wait, oh. what did you say? <laughs> she goes, dead in a ditch. No, 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 no.
0: The end. She goes, unfixable. That sounds like a challenge. (laughs) So. So, we're going to have to see how that one goes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. You talked about names when we started, which was very cool, Heidi. And uh, and clearly, they're important to you. um, But what about naming your own characters?
2: Oh, I think naming characters is interesting because as a reader, that's kind of our snap first impression that we get of someone. You know how you meet someone and you instantly assume something about them based upon their face quite unfairly? I mean, we all do it. We've been programmed to do it biologically. And then seeing a character's name is also the same thing. And so a lot of times if you pick a name that's loaded with significance because it's common, you have to either go with that kind of idea behind it or go completely opposite, like Jessica. All of us know a Jessica, and instantly when we see the name Jessica, we're going to have that kind of subconscious thing going on in the background. So I try and pick names that have no kind of baggage with them, mm-hmm. or names that have some mythological significance, just to play fun games with myself and see if the readers are paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I, well. Dick ends up going by his last name for obvious reasons reasons, in The Raven Boys, but also Mm -hmm. because no one has any kind of associations with Gansy. And then Blue was named a long, long time ago because her psychic background meant that her mom had first named her because of the color of her aura, though I don't think that's mentioned in this one. But I started writing this book 11 years ago when I was 19, and it's evolved quite a bit since then. And now, Beyoncé has gone and named her Baby Blue. (laughs) And I would just like to point out right here... I had it first. <laughs> <laughs> what was she thinking? I
1: had
2: no idea. She was ahead of the power curve. She probably had an advanced review copy. She must <laughs> have.
0: That's what it was. Well, it's conventional wisdom, often in writing for teens, and I, I know what you think of t- conventional wisdom already here, but um, t- <laughs> Did to you see create you judge
2: me right there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, very frequently, characters are. Uh, create characters who can't wait to leave home. Um, But a frequent theme in your books, which I find really interesting, are the characters' deep connection to home. Um, Blue for the Virginia Hills, and Puck, of course, who's willing to do anything to stay on the island of Thisbe. So talk about that. That's a really interesting theme.
2: I think it's a very American thing for us to have this kind of idea of teens leaving the nest and always longing and agitating to leave, especially small towns, but having lived in small towns my entire life, I find that teens are kind of 50-50 as far as wanting to stay and wanting to go, and there's this definitely stereotype that the people who want to stay are the ones who are uneducated, they don't want to pursue any kind of career, but I also find that that's not true at all either, and so I do feel like YA fiction is missing a lot of these teens. And I've gotta say, as someone who lives in the middle of nowhere Virginia and loves it, I'm used to spending all of my time justifying why it is that I want to live so far from a store, why it is I want to live someplace so quiet that no one will hear me scream when I'm buried in the backyard. <laughs> and. These books are kind of my way of doing that without being having to sit there and preach at a dinner conversation, mm-hmm. how when you go out onto the porch and you can hear nothing but crickets and cows and it's just you. And so especially the Scorpio races, well, no, I think that's not true because Gansey has quite a love affair with the Virginia mm-hmm. mountains in The Raven Boys. And so I really wanted to talk about the connection with nature because I feel like a lot of people have it and they don't know how to put words to it. Mm-hmm.
0: I really appreciate that theme, I think, because as you say, it's an uncommon one. And I I do run in, you know, you know people all the time who have that connection. And I think to say to teens, you know, it's all right. You could like your home. It's all right. It's a good thing, I think. So I I was very, that one jumped out at me, and I thought that was really a a special piece about your writing. Um, Talk about some of the things you'd still like to do. um, what are you still wanting to say? What would you like to try in the writing world? What are you thinking about? Mm. I
2: still want to someday write a really slick thriller. I, <laughs> I keep trying. And then reviewers keep saying things like this lush, slow-moving paranormal. No, no, slick thriller. <laughs> so I still would like to do that one day, this slick action adventure. Actually, I've been throwing around the idea of an IRA thriller for teens. I think that would be interesting.
1: <laughs> Narrated
2: by a flag. Okay, but the thing that I really do want to do is I would love to do a graphic novel of the Scorpio races oh, one day Very cool. because I'd love to be able to bring my old life of being a portrait artist into the full... Oh, that world. would be
0: so fun. So you're going to do the illustrations too, right? Oh, that would be awesome. In my
2: imagined future.
0: I, that, I'm ready. Sign me up. I think that would be great. Um, I can't close tonight our portion of this evening without asking you about the race car.
2: Uh, so I just bought one. Yes, yay, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I just feel like, I don't know, it's like every woman, you know, you're trying to grapple between your identity. Once you go through your 20s, you're like, who am I? What should I do? I feel like I'm getting older. Buy a race car. <laughs> Turned 30, it's time, it's time. I've always loved rally car driving, and so now I'm gonna be doing stage rallying and doing six national races next year, and it's gonna be wrapped in the cover of The Raven Boys.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah, indeed. Awesome. So
2: parts will probably fall off. My editor's not so thrilled about this idea. He's like, could you finish writing this series first, do you think? (laughs) Also, wear a helmet. (laughs) But no, I'm very excited about this
0: concept. Well, it sounds like it will be really exciting, although I think all of us are with your editor. We would like you to keep writing first, you know, before you slam that door. Um, And I I can't also let you get away without asking, what's next? What what have you just about turned into your editor?
2: I am nearly done with the sequel for The Raven Boys. And... When I said that I started writing The Raven Boys 11 years ago, it was sort of a lie because the ley line mythology is quite new. It took me a while to figure out how I was going to get my Welsh king over to the Virginia countryside and so I found the ley lines quite recently in the past couple of years. And so that draft back then involved a lot of what happened after the events of The Raven Boys currently. So that old draft is actually what I'm writing the sequel now. And it's I don't know, I've been circling this book for a long time because I'm really excited about what's in this second book, Mm -hmm. so I can't tell you anything. I'm sorry, that was like the worst answer ever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, can we get you to read some of The Raven Boys?
2: I should say, um, so I get to choose all of my audiobook narrators, for these books, and I really love the narrator for the Scorpio races. I have, uh, there's two British narrators, one for Sean and one for Puck, and I think they do a great job. And also the narrator for Sean is quite good looking, and all librarians, when they meet him at <laughs> events, go, oh, can we take your picture with your narrators? By which they mean only him. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when they were doing the choosing the narrators for the Raven Boys, they asked who they should have, what I was looking for, and I said, well, I'd really like someone who has one of those old Southern accents to narrate it. Preferably an old Virginia accent because mm-hmm. it's a really classy accent. But I've taken any old Southern accent. And they sent me this list of narrators. And it was all people who were currently living in L.A. that uh, had never seen the South. And they were all faking Southern accents. And so they all sounded like they are kind of my car mechanic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Blue Sergeant had forgotten how many times she'd been told she'd kill her true love. And I uh, <laughs> like, no, 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 either a real accent or no accent at all. So we have Will Patton doing it now, he does a fantastic job, but I'm not going to read it like that. I'm going to read the prologue because I think, that's, I think that's a good way to start it. Also it's a good opportunity for me to say, I read every single word out loud when I write. Um, especially, I didn't used to do that, but now I feel like I can't, and it makes the writing quite slow sometimes, but in my head I read everything out loud. So. I've never actually read it out loud to an audience before. If you don't like it, don't say anything. <laughs> Blue Sargent had forgotten how many times she had been told that she would kill her true love. Her family traded in predictions. These predictions tended, however, to run toward the nonspecific. Things like, something terrible will happen to you today. It might involve the number six. Or, money is coming, open your hand for it or you have a big decision and it will not make itself. The people who came to the little bright blue house at 300 Foxway didn't mind the imprecise nature of their fortunes. It became a game, a challenge to realize the exact moment that the predictions came true. When a van carrying six people wheeled into a client's car two hours after his psychic reading, he could nod with a sense of accomplishment and release. When a neighbor offered to buy another's old client's old lawnmower if she was looking for a little bit of extra cash, she could recall the promise of money coming and sell it with the sense that the transaction had been foretold. Or, when a third client heard his wife say, this is a decision that has to be made, he could remember the same words being said by Morris Sergeant over a spread of tarot cards and then leap decisively to action. But the imprecise nature of the fortunes stole some of their power. The predictions could be dismissed as coincidences, hunches. They were a chuckle in the Walmart parking lot when you ran into an old friend as promised. A shiver when the number 17 appeared on the electric bill. A realization that even if you had discovered the future, it really didn't change how you lived in the present. They were truth, but they weren't all the truth. I should tell you, Mora always advised her new clients, that this reading will be accurate, but not specific. It was easier that way. But this was not what Blue was told. Again and again, she had her fingers spread wide, her palm examined, her cards plucked from velvet-edged decks and spread across the fuzz of a family friend's living room carpet. Thumbs were pressed to the mystical, invisible third eye that was said to lie between everyone's eyebrows. Runes were cast and dreams interpreted, tea leaves scrutinized and seances conducted. All the women came to the same conclusion, blunt and inexplicably specific. What they all agreed on in many different clairvoyant languages was this. If Blue was to kiss her true love, he would die. For a long time, this bothered Blue. The warning was specific, certainly, but in the way of a fairy tale. It didn't say how her true love would die. It didn't say how long after the kiss he would survive. Did it have to be a kiss on the lips? Would a chaste peck on the back of his palm prove as deadly? Until she was 11, Blue was convinced she would silently contract an infectious disease one press of her lips to her hypothetical soulmate, and he too would die in a consumptive battle, untreatable by modern medicine. When she was 13, Blue decided that jealousy would kill him instead, an old boyfriend emerging at the moment of that first kiss, bearing a handgun and a heart full of hurt. When she turned 15, Blue concluded that her mother's tarot cards were just a pack of playing cards and that the dreams of her mother and the other clairvoyant women were fueled by mixed drinks rather than otherworldly insight, and so the prediction did not matter. She knew better, though. The predictions that came out of 300 Fox Way were unspecific, but undeniably true. Her mother had dreamt Blue's broken wrist on the first day of school. Her Aunt Jimmy predicted Mora's tax return to within $10. Her older cousin Orla always began to hum her favorite song a few minutes before it came on the radio. No one in the house ever really doubted that Blue was destined to kill her true love with a kiss. It was a threat, however, that had been around for so long that it had lost its force. Picturing six-year-old Blue in love was such a far-off thing as to be imaginary, and by sixteen, Blue had decided she would never fall in love, so it didn't matter. But that belief changed when her mother's half sister Neve came to their little town of Henrietta. Neve had gotten famous for doing loudly what Blue's mother did quietly. Mora's readings were done in her front room, mostly for residents of Henrietta and the valley around it. Neve, on the other hand, did her readings on television at five o'clock in the morning. She had a website featuring old soft-focus photographs of her staring unerringly at the viewer. Four books on the supernatural bore her name on the cover. Blue had never met Neve, so she knew more about her half-aunt from a cursory web search than from personal experience. Blue wasn't sure why Neve was coming to visit, but she knew her imminent arrival spurred a legion of whispered conversations between Mora and her two best friends, Persephone and Calla. Sort of conversations that trailed off into sipping coffee and tapping pens on the table when Blue entered the room. But Blue wasn't particularly concerned about Neve's arrival. What was one more woman in a house filled to the brim with them? Neve finally appeared on a spring evening when the already long shadows of the mountains of the west seemed even longer than usual. When Blue opened the door for her, she thought, for a moment, that Neve was an unfamiliar old woman. But then her eyes grew used to the stretched crimson light coming through the trees, and she saw that Neve was barely older than her mother, which was not very old at all. Outside, in the distance, hounds were crying. Blue was familiar enough with their voices. Each fall, the Agland Hunt Club rode out with horses and foxhounds nearly every weekend. Blue knew what their frantic howls meant at that moment. They were on the chase. You're Mora's daughter, Neve said, and before Blue could answer, she added this is the year you'll fall in love.
1: Awesome.
0: All right, lucky people. Now it's your turn to ask the questions. Um, they are going to bring the lights up so that we can see.
2: Oh, that's here. Oh, that there's helps. so many of you. Yeah.
0: Wow. Hello, friendly people. Um, there are some volunteers who are in the audience and they will bring the microphone to you. So if you'll raise your hand, we'll try and get... Um, here we go, right here. Uh, I just wonder if you could explain a little more about your writing partner.
2: Oh, my writing partners. I have two of them, two critique partners, Tessa Grattan and Brenna Yovanoff. They're both young adult authors now published when we met I had just gotten my contract, and they didn't have even agents, and the thing is, I used to have writing critique partner groups, and I hated them. <laughs> I really did. They made me feel like I didn't even want to write. I felt like when they gave me my critiques, I would sit around for days going, oh, I guess I have to get around, or fixing what they said. It just didn't sit right with me, and then I sold my first book. and. My editor was brilliant. He gave me these amazing suggestions, and I couldn't wait to dive in and just tear the book apart at the basis of his suggestions. It was exactly, I mean, it was like it was his, my voice being objective. And that's something that every writer loses as they've spent eight months on a novel or whatever. And I knew that there must be other people out there that could do the same thing as my editor, but that I could have it my beck and call constantly. And so I put out a call for critique partners. I had a critique partner love connection on my blog, and I said, here's the deal. I'll read the first 50 pages of your novel, and you will read the first 50 pages of mine. We will critique it, and then we'll send it back to each other. And if for any reason we don't like what happens, we don't like writing, we don't like the critiquing, we can walk away, no questions asked. And so I went through about 13, 15, and I found Brenna and Tess, and we just clicked right away. I loved their writing, and they were better than my (laughs) editor. And right now, they read everything I write before my editor sees it. I can't imagine writing a novel without them. But yes, they sound like my own voice if I was still objective. And so that Critique Love Partner Connection is still up on my blog. I do one every single year. And if you search for my name and Love Partner Connection or Love Connection, you'll find it on there and probably other interesting things too, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's hundreds of people that are always exchanging emails looking for them. But I highly recommend it.
0: Hey, who's next out there? There, in the back, I think.
2: Hi. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> so um, I have a question about your writing process a little bit. Um, I was wondering, so do you always, um, so I'm assuming you start with a plan of the whole story, what's going to happen, maybe, sort of. <laughs> like you plan? have a general idea. <laughs> uh, um, and so do you, do you like to start at the beginning, writing at the beginning, and write from the beginning to the end, or do you sometimes write the last chapter first, or do you sometimes have a specific scene in mind, and then you base the whole story around, or like you create the story around that? I know you mentioned for the Scorpio races, the white cliffs with the red horse. In of it. When you say the word plan, I feel like it precludes any kind of opportunity for panic and there's a lot of panic involved in my writing process. <laughs> for me, what is most important is I have to have a final scene. Not necessarily the very last scene, the epilogue, but I have to have a final image that I'm working towards. And I write novels like I do everything else in life, so if I'm taking a road trip, I have, to have The first point, and the last point, and a couple of key stops along the way. Like um, last year, instead of flying on my book tour, I convinced my publisher it would be a great idea to let me drive 5,000 miles in my 73 old jalopy Camaro across country. And um, I had lots of things like this where I would start in Chicago, beginning point, knew that I had to end up in Madison, Wisconsin, end point, and know that I wanted to stop at some creepy caves, some preservative-free ice cream, and an event along the way. I mean, priorities here. And so I would just start driving after having a couple of different options of getting to that end and hitting all of those points. And I just start driving spontaneously and see what happens. And so a lot of times you just get there without any sort of incident. But usually between one of the points, you'll see something that catches your eye. For instance, a nine-foot-tall statue of a Viking that says, Welcome to Little Norway. And if you see that, and I don't think if you have a soul, you can drive by that sign without finding out what's going on. And so, we drove down there, found out what was going on. Um, don't follow that sign next time you guys pass, <laughs> I think you're fine. And um, sometimes it's, it's not useful, just like going and seeing what Little Norway is and you have to delete it and backtrack, but you still know you're headed towards the next point on the map. And I feel like that's how I write my novels too. I always have my core scenes I know I'm hitting and that final emotional climax that very visual image that I'm headed towards and then I just head towards it. Sometimes I delete 5,000 words, 10,000, 50,000, the entire novel. So I think that's... Does that answer the question? It didn't involve the word plan, you'll notice.
0: Yes, over here. Do you carry like a writer's notebook? or anything like to help keep yourself organized and when you think of a thought, just to jot it down quick.
2: I feel like this is a leading question. Like, does anyone here actually know what I carry around instead of a notebook? If you read my blog, sometimes you do. Normally it's these. (laughs) And normally there's Sharpie all over them. You can still see some of it soaked into my pores from my last flight. I write on my hands all the time while I'm rough drafting. And it's not even needing to refer back to it. It's the act of, this sounds Crazy right now. It's the act of writing it down on my hands that is important. And once I write down my hands, I know it forever. That's fine. That's good. But I've tried keeping a notebook. Everyone says, Oh, look at you. You've run out of hand space. Here, have a notebook. You're trying to ruin things. So I don't know. I write things down on my hands all the time. The only problem that I have with this is that I was on my linger tour writing forever. And I realized that as I was jotting notes on my hands in permanent marker on my way to my first stop that I had written down a massive spoiler on the back of my hands. <laughs> so I'm flying, landing, and having an event right afterwards. So I'm in the bathroom, like, ah! Why are you so guaranteed, Sharpie? And then, <laughs> and then people are zooming in their lenses, and I'm So now I'm more careful about what I write on my hands, but yes, I always write on my hands. Though, I will say, I do have notes to myself on my iPhone sometimes that I keep by my bed, so when I wake up with a great idea for a scene, I can write it down. Though sometimes, well, usually the ideas I have at night are not so great. I had one, I was like, this is going to be the best idea ever, and when I woke up and looked at my note, it was about a guy who turned into Catwoman at night, and batman during the day oh, <laughs> that seemed so promising and gender bending last night now just seems like a huge copyright infringement
1: <laughs> that was maggie stiefodder at the national writer series she spoke with librarian lynn rutan who publishes the blog bookends for more about the national writer series you can go to nationalwriterseries.org The next event will be November 29th with Michael Connolly, New York Times bestselling author of The Lincoln Lawyer. Neil Stino helped produce this show thanks to Joe Bears at the City Opera House in Traverse City. I'm Peter Payette, and you're listening to Interlochen Public Radio.